0: Take a Bible, find John 14. Corey read our passage earlier. We're going to reference it quite a bit this morning, so you want to have a copy of the Scriptures open. There are notes in the bulletin you can track with the message this morning. This is week five in the Farewell Discourse. If you've been here for the previous four weeks, you know that the Farewell Discourse was delivered in the context of the Passover celebration. We saw that back in... John 13, verse 1, it's the Passover. Jesus is celebrating with his disciples. It's the night before his betrayal and his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. He is literally saying farewell. He's saying goodbye to his disciples, and they're troubled, and they're concerned that Jesus is leaving, and Jesus is trying to comfort them and give them some measure of encouragement. One of the interesting parts of this passage is the fact that there is an appearance by somebody named Judas, not Iscariot. And it is the only time in the Gospels, the only time in the Bible, that this man is singled out and mentioned as an individual. So if you show up in the Bible one time, we ought to at least hit pause and talk about you for a minute. So Judas, not Iscariot. One of the early church fathers, whose name was Jerome, referred to this Judas and called him Trinomius, which is Latin for three names. He had three names. You understand, if you know the story of Judas Iscariot, that if your name was Judas and you were friends with somebody like that, you wouldn't want to go by the name Judas. So what looks like happened is as the years went on, he started to go by the name Thaddeus, or Labaius, or sometimes he was specified as Judas, the son of James. Sometimes they just got right to the point and said, look, this is Judas, but it's not Iscariot. He didn't want to be confused with the wrong Judas. If there's anybody in the Bible that ought to make you think of Hunter Siegler, I think it is Judas, not Iscariot. Hunter Siegler has more names than anybody I've ever met in my life. I feel like it's the scene in Rocky IV where they're introducing Apollo Creed and his nicknames take 15 minutes to go through. We call him Garrick because that's his given name. We call him Hubcap because one time he got the Hubcap stolen off the church van on a mission trip. So we call him Hubcap. We call him Nugget, Big Cat, asterisk. One year he won a fantasy football league. He was the champ, but he wasn't there for the draft. And we all just... Assumed that Cricket actually picked his team for him. He wasn't there. No one was there to see it happen, so we gave him the trophy, but we put an asterisk by it. Uh, He has the nickname Pookie Bear, and look, he's still earning new nicknames. I'll show you a picture from the tailgate party the other night. That's Hunter's car, and that's a rail next to a fire hydrant, and I got a phone call from somebody before I went up to the tailgate party, and they said, you need to call and check on your youth pastor. And I texted him, I said, hey, what's going on? And he sent me that picture back. So I said, Hunter, what happened? And you know what he said? He said, I saw it. I saw it. So we're taking suggestions for a new nickname here. I think this is worthy of some kind of nickname. Somebody suggested guardrail. Somebody suggested running board. I don't know what you want to call him. Uh, But he's got a lot of nicknames. And here's the point. Judas, not Iscariot, had a lot of names. The names Thaddeus and Labaius, if you literally translate them, they mean something like heart of a child or, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but mama's boy. These nicknames probably tell you something about this man, that he had a tender heart. He had a soft side. And you see that in the question that he asks In this passage, he's not challenging Jesus. He's not arguing with Jesus. He's not bowing up against Jesus. He's genuinely asking a question about what Jesus is telling them. I want to remind you of the context of this passage. The discussion that we're looking at this morning about the Holy Spirit, it follows a discussion about the disciples doing greater works and asking for things in Jesus' name. So we stopped last week at John 14, verse 14. And right where we left off, Jesus is saying to the disciples, you will do greater works than me, and if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. We hit a pause right there because you just can't look at everything in the Bible on a single Sunday morning, and we pick up this morning. But I just want you to understand there's no pause in the original, right? What Jesus was saying when he said, you will do greater works than me. I'm going to unleash you in this worldwide missionary movement of the gospel and when he says, You'll ask for things in my name and I'll do them, that's connected with what we're looking at this morning where Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit. That unleashes the greater works, the missionary movement of the church. And it's the Spirit of God, Paul says, that actually intercedes for us in prayer when we don't even know what we ought to be praying for. So when you think about these greater works and you think about asking in Jesus' name, that is certainly connected to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's the big idea of this passage it's very straightforward, very simple. The Father sends the Holy Spirit to empower his people to love and obey Jesus. God the Father sends God the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's job in our lives is to empower us or enable us or move us to love Jesus and to obey Jesus. Last week I told you that in John 14, 15, 16, we are wading into deep, trinitarian waters. We're talking about the nature of the triune God. The orthodox formulation of God's triune nature is that God is one in essence and he is three in person. There is only one God. There are not three gods. There is only one God. He is one in essence but there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That is hard for finite people to take in. As finite humans, we listen to that math and we say, I don't exactly know how to hold all that together in my brain. What we do as finite human beings is we sometimes use earthly, human, physical analogies to try to make sense of the invisible God. It's not a good idea sometimes we say things like, you know, the Trinity. It's kind of like an egg. There's a shell and a yolk and a white. There's one egg, but there's three parts. That's kind of like the Trinity. Or we say something like, the Trinity's kind of like water. You can freeze it. It can be liquid. It can be vapor. There's three states, but it's all the same stuff. Uh, Maybe we say... The Trinity is kind of like a family. There's a dad and a mom and there's kids. There's three within this family, one family, three persons, or maybe we just boil it down to something as simple as a three-leaf clover. There's one clover, there's three leaves, it's all together in one. Here's the thing. If you take those earthly analogies and press them all far enough, you become a heretic. You end up saying things about God that simply are not true. When we come to the doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible, our job is not simplifying the Trinity with some silly analogy so that we feel like we can get our arms around it. Our responsibility as the people of God is to listen to what the Bible says about God's character, to receive it by faith, and not to go beyond what the Bible has said. So this morning we're in these Trinitarian waters. There is one God Father, Son, and Spirit are the three persons in the Godhead. We're going to see this morning how they work together for our salvation. The Father sends the Spirit to empower His people to love and obey Jesus. One of the things that fascinates me most in life is language, just human language, spoken language, written language. I'm fascinated by the process of translating one language into another language One of the things that I think is interesting is the difference between a translation and a transliteration. Those are not the same things. A translation is when you take the idea of a word or a sentence or a paragraph. You take the idea and you translate it into the same idea in a different language. A transliteration is when you take the phonetic sound in one language and you just cross it over, you copy it over directly into a new word in a different language. I'll give you some examples of transliterations, okay? Karate, that's not an English word. If you translated karate into English, what you would literally say is open-handed, unarmed combat, But when you were five years old, you didn't go take open-handed, unarmed combat lessons. You went and took karate lessons. It's easier to say it that way. Same thing is true with the word pajama. How many of you wrongly pronounce it pajama? Raise your hands. Be honest. That's not how you say this word. It's pajama. It's a Persian word, and literally translated, it means loose-fitting sleeping clothes. But you don't tell your kids or your grandkids, hey, It's time for you to go put on your loose-fitting sleeping clothes. You say, go put on your pajamas. Or if you're wrong, you say, go put on your pajamas. (laughs) Baptize is a transliteration. The Greek word is baptizo. Literally, to translate it, it means to dip or to dunk or to immerse, just like we did in these baptisms. But in the history of the church, in the history of Bible translation, when they came to this word, they did not want to translate it into English because they weren't dipping and dunking and immersing people, so they transliterated it. They made up a new word. They took the sound from the Greek, crossed it over into English with the word baptize. Why are we talking about language? Why why this English translation lesson? It's because in this passage, in verse 16 and 26, there is a really tricky word. The word in the original language is parakletos, and it gets translated a number of different ways. Sometimes it's translated helper, sometimes comforter, sometimes advocate, sometimes friend. There are others there's really not a good English word that captures what this word actually means. What the word literally means is someone who comes alongside of you to help in a time of trouble. That's kind of a mouthful, right? If we translated what Jesus was saying here, we would say Jesus said, I'm gonna ask the Father, and he would send you someone who will come alongside of you to help you in a time of trouble. That's so long and cumbersome, we sort of search for English words, and sometimes it just gets transliterated as the paraclete. That's what Jesus is talking about in this section of the farewell discourse. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, and he's describing the Holy Spirit as a helper, a friend, an advocate, a comforter, somebody who comes alongside of you in a time of trouble, and someone who comes alongside of you to help in a time of trouble. Here's the question that we want to ask and answer this morning. What does Jesus want his disciples to know about the Holy Spirit and his role in our lives? How are we to understand the person and the work of the paraclete? Here's the first thing you need to wrap your mind around. The Holy Spirit is another paraclete, which means he's a paraclete like Jesus, He is another helper, another advocate, another friend, another comforter. Look what we read in verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. The Greek word he uses is alas, and it means another one that is like the first one, the same. Jesus says, you will have another helper, which makes you stop and say, well, who's the first helper? And the answer is Jesus himself. We looked at this verse over the summer, 1 John 2, verse 1. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. That's our word. We have a paraclete. We have a friend. We have a helper. We have a comforter. We have somebody who comes alongside of us in a time of trouble to help us. Who is it, this advocate with the Father? It's Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the first helper. And what he says in this passage is, I'm going to ask the Father, and the Father will send another helper. He'll be like me, only he's not me. He'll do the same thing that I came to do. Which begs the question, how does Jesus help us? 1 John 2, 1 gives us the answer. When you have sinned, Jesus is your helper with the Father. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose from the dead, securing your salvation, and he is your helper as you stand before a holy God as a sinful person. He accomplished our salvation. Then he says, I'm going to send another helper, like the first helper, a second helper. It's the Holy Spirit. His job is to take the salvation that Jesus accomplished on our behalf and to apply it to our lives. He is another helper. This is the triune God working together for the salvation of sinners. The Father, God the Father, plans our salvation. God the Son, Jesus, accomplishes our salvation. God the Holy Spirit applies that salvation to our lives. Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, three persons working together for the salvation of His people. Here's the second thing we need to see about the Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit builds on the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. There is continuity here. That's what we just talked about, but I want to make this perfectly clear. The work of the Spirit builds on what Jesus has done in his life, death, and his resurrection. Sometimes if you listen to certain preachers, teachers in charismatic circles, you'll hear people say something like this. They'll say, what we need today is a new work of the Spirit. We need a a new, fresh, exciting work of the Spirit. And if you listen to these people say this sort of thing, what they seem to be saying is this. Jesus did a nice thing. We really need it. We're very thankful for it. He died on the cross for our sins. We believe that and we remember that. That was a long time ago, though. It's been 2,000 years. And what we need is something current, something new, something fresh, something exciting. And you say, well, what's the alternative? Something old? Yes. Something really old. We don't need anything new from the Spirit. We need the Spirit to apply to our lives old, old gospel story about a Savior who came to this earth from glory who gave his life on Calvary for wretches like you and me. That's what we need. We need the Spirit of God to take what God the Son, Jesus, accomplished on the cross and to apply that to our lives. I listened to a sermon this week. It was a preacher that I used to listen to with some regularity. And I hadn't listened to him in a long time, and I came across a podcast, and he had started a new series, and so I downloaded a few, and I was listening to this guy preach. And uh, The first couple sermons were fine, and uh, in about the third or fourth sermon I listened to, he started talking about the Holy Spirit, and I thought, well, this is great. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. Maybe he'll have something I can steal. That's what preachers do. We listen to other preachers, and we steal their stuff, and we pretend like we're that smart. And so I thought, maybe there'll be something here I can use. This is great. Perfect timing, God has orchestrated this. He started talking about the Holy Spirit and he immediately started talking about vacation and he said, me and my wife recently went on vacation. It was a spur of the moment trip. We didn't make any plans, no reservations at all but we prayed all throughout the trip and we just asked the Holy Spirit to make everything work. We didn't have a hotel reservation. All the hotels in this area were booked. But you know what? We prayed and the Holy Spirit opened up a hotel room. And we wanted to go to this particular place, but it was closed because of COVID restrictions. That's okay. We just prayed. And guess what? We showed up and it was open for one day and the Holy Spirit did that. That's about where he lost me. I just hit pause and I thought, are you telling me that the job of Almighty God, God the Holy Spirit, is to be your GPS navigation system? His job is to be your bellhop or your hotel concierge who's gonna make all your plans? Are you telling me that is the job of God the Holy Spirit? He simply exists to make your vacation run smoothly? That's not the view of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is talking about. In this passage, what Jesus is saying is this the Holy Spirit builds on what Jesus has done. He doesn't exist to make your vacation plans perfect, He exists to take the finished work of Jesus and to apply it to your life. Look in the text, look at verse 19. Verse 19 Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. Really, a little while. He's about to die. He's going to die and he's going to be buried. Jesus says, but you will see me. How's that possible? Well, it's possible because when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared only to his disciples. He didn't appear to the world. He didn't appear to Herod. He didn't show up and talk to Pilate. He didn't show up and talk to the Roman emperor. He appeared only to his disciples. The world did not see him after the resurrection. Look at verse 20. He says, in that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you and me, and I am in you. How do we know that Jesus will be in us? It's through the work of the Holy Spirit. He's building on what Jesus has done. He's building on the work of Jesus. Verse 18, I won't leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. He comes to his people, not just in post-resurrection appearances, but in the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is building Excuse me, the Holy Spirit is building on what Jesus has accomplished in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. He's not simply a force that we summon to make life better or easier or smoother. He's taking the finished work of Jesus and he's applying it to our lives. Thirdly, this is important, the Holy Spirit offers peace, genuine peace, real peace to those who have troubled hearts You understand, these men were troubled. Twice, already in the farewell discourse, Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled, because they were troubled. Jesus said he was leaving, and they were bothered by that. We can't exactly relate. We haven't walked with Jesus. We haven't fished with Jesus. We haven't listened to Jesus teach audibly We didn't sit down at a Passover meal and eat with Jesus. We didn't exactly, or we can't exactly know the the hurt and the confusion and the trouble of Jesus saying, I'm leaving you. But we certainly know trouble. We know what it's like to be troubled, to feel troubled. Have you watched the news this week? There's all sorts of troubled people in the world. People troubled about votes and this kind of vote and that kind of vote and winners of this and who called that and what about this state? I mean, there's troubled people out there. There's people troubled about COVID. This person is sick. My friend is sick. People think it's not a big deal. People think it's overblown. Whichever side of the whole thing you fall on, there's people who are troubled about this whole deal. There's people locally troubled about oil prices. What's going to happen? Is it going to go up? Is it going to go down? Is it going to stay still? People are troubled by that. There's teachers who are troubled because they're tired of teaching to a screen, and there's parents who are troubled because they're tired of doing school with their kids, and there's kids who are troubled because they're tired of their parents and their teachers and all the rest of it. Everybody's troubled. Where do you find peace? You won't find it at the bottom of a bottle or the bottom of a bottle of pills. There's plenty of people who look for it there. They won't find it. Some of you would never look there for peace, but you would look to Netflix and Disney Plus and Amazon Prime, and you just want to binge watch a series and take your mind off everything and escape and say, ah, a moment of peace. Guess what? The series ends. You come back to real life. No peace. Where do you find it? Where do you find peace? Look what Jesus says in verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give. I'm giving you peace. Peace that belongs to me. I'm giving it to you. And it's not the kind of peace the world is offering you. You understand in Jesus' day, Jew and Roman, they all talked about peace. The Romans loved to boast and brag about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They had conquered the known world. They had subjugated all the people that they had come across, and they said there is peace all over the world. And in a sense, there was peace. There was an absence of fighting and conflict, but it was peace that came with a sword to your throat. The Jews talked about peace. They talked about shalom. It was just a common Jewish greeting. They would have said it hundreds of times every day. They said it over and over and over again when they saw each other. Peace to you and peace to you. Peace be upon you. Peace be upon you. It's sort of like when you walk into church and you see an old friend and they say, hey, how's it going? And even though you're troubled, you look at them and you say, I'm good. I'm fine. It's great. How are you? Oh, I'm good too. Nobody's troubled. Nobody's troubled. The Jews talked about that kind of peace over and over and over again. It was just a word that became empty of meaning. And Jesus says, look, what you need is peace. And I'm not giving you peace like the world gives you. It's not the kind of peace that comes at the end of a sword. It's not the kind of peace that's just an empty, hollow phrase that you say over and over and over again but really has no meaning. Is not the kind of peace that you're going to find by reforming society or education or taxation or education or immigration or any of the shuns. You're going to re- reform all these things and then you're going to find peace. That's not the kind of peace I'm offering you. I'm not offering you a worldly kind of peace. I'm offering you real peace. Peace with the Father. Your sinful people who stand under the judgment of a holy, righteous God. His wrath ought to fall on you, and I'm offering you peace. He offers genuine peace. Number four, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives empowers us to love and obey Jesus. And I know that's the big idea. And I'm asking you to fill those blanks in twice or think about that thought twice because it is the thread that runs throughout this passage. The Spirit's job in our lives is to move us and empower us to love Jesus and obey Jesus. Look at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. Notice in verse 16, he immediately says, I'm going to send you a helper. Why in the world do we need a helper? It's because left to ourselves, we're not very good at loving Jesus or obeying his commandments. So when he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, he immediately follows that up and says, I'm going to help you do that. I'm going to send another helper. Look at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If you have my commandments and you keep my commandments, you're the one who loves me. Look what he says in verse 23. Judas has asked this question, how are you going to manifest yourself to us and not the world? Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my word. The Father will love you. My Father will love him. And we will come and make our home with him. That's the answer. How are you going to manifest yourself to us and not the world? I'm going to come to those who love me and those who keep my word, and I'm going to make my home with them. You remember in John 14, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Same word. I'm going to make my place with you. Those who love me, those who keep my commandments, I'll make my place with you. Look at verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, he will come, he will teach you these things, he'll bring to remembrance all that I've said, all that I've said about loving me, all that I've said about keeping my commandments. And he's not just going to remind you of these things, but he's going to empower you to do these things. Here's the reality. Americans have a hard time reconciling these ideas of love and obedience. In our minds, those two things just don't go together. Part of the problem is we bought into a sentimentalized view of love that is so empty and vacuous, we have no place for obedience in our love for Jesus. Part of the problem is we are so terrified of being Pharisees and legalists, which we ought to be, but we're so terrified of that, we end up saying things like, we want you to have a relationship with Jesus. It really doesn't have anything to do with rules at all. What we end up saying to people is all you have to have is a feeling in your heart about something and the rules and the obedience are really optional. You can take it or leave it. Jesus just kind of holds all these things together. He says, look, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you love me. We're confused people and Jesus is setting us straight. Not only is he setting us straight, but he's setting the example. Did you catch what he said in verse 31? He said... I do as the Father has commanded me. I'm doing what the Father has told me to do. That's obedience. And look what he said right after that. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. When Jesus says to you, I want you to love me and I want you to keep my commandments, he is not asking you to do anything that he hasn't already done. He says, I love the Father, and I kept the Father's command. And in keeping that command, in being obedient to the Father, he died on the cross for our sins. His life, his death, and his resurrection. He accomplished our salvation. And then he says, I'm going to send the Spirit. I'm going to ask the Father, and the Father will send the Spirit. And he's going to empower you to do what I'm calling you to do. He's going to empower you to do what I've done, to love God, and to keep his commandments. So on that note, we're going to pray that the Spirit would be present and active in our lives in this way. Join me as we pray.